Shall we do a frith cast? Let's do that. We could totally do that. I think we can do that. Yeah. I think we've had a bit of practice by now. Maybe one or two. I mean, we still haven't got proper microphones, but, mm-hmm. you know. Maybe in the 300s. In in the 300, we've... Wait. What? We're in 2021. 300 episodes. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you meant the 300 AD. No, the that's a bit too far back AD. for me. That's No, I'm not interested in that bit. That's just... That's my stuff. I know. That's my lot, that. I know, it's your lot. Just before everything all went... To rats? Yeah. Yeah. It's probably a pretty good time, to be honest. Whole heyday and all of that. Yeah. I suppose. Good stuff around that time. It was all right. I mean, you got... You'd missed out on your Marcus Aurelius and stuff like that. Everybody was getting a bit kind of... But he only kind of went for four, four years of peace in 20... Yes, but it'd be a nice four years, wouldn't it? Yeah. Just chilling out, eating grapes. That's what Romans used to do, isn't it? That and Dormices. Dormice used to eat grapes? No, Dormice used to eat Romans. Rodents of unusual size. Mm. Romans of unusual size. Yes. Oh, dear. Roman nose? Roman nose. <laughs> Somebody must. People called Romanes, they go the house. And the clenched of Romanes is. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck it, if plural of Roman it. Sorry, I can't remember how that script that. Make it a command. (laughs) Using the, the, the imperative, imperative. Anyway, um, shall we do a frith cast? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Okay. Um, do you want to put the music in here? Yeah, we'll do the music about here. Okay. Fascinated by it though, it's yeah, it's quite uplifting. Maybe I was, I don't know, maybe it's just maybe it's like, um, uh, what do you call it? Maybe it's like uh, one of those those melodies that, that, that like come floating through from the other world, right? That's just like next door playing the music too loud. No, 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 I'm talking about you know, the sort of thing like when you're a, when you're a Cylon and somebody plays all along the watchtower in your head, that kind of thing, you know. That sort of thing. Like, there's this mystic piece of music that you just, you keep hearing and you can't kind of get it out of your mind. And the, I think our tune will finish by now, won't it? Yeah, I keep much. saying our tune. It's not our tune. Yeah. We've nicked it off somebody. But it, Well, in a fair practice kind I, of I think fair use way. I think in a fair use yeah. sort of, sort of uh, you know, I if think... If you keep hearing the same tune every day, are you going in the same elevator every day? Is that it? Are could, you... be. Mm. could be. Oh, my God, maybe... Oh, maybe this isn't real. Maybe this isn't real. Maybe there's a me out there somewhere. Maybe this is like a a, a life on Mars kind of deal. Mm, could be. And I'm imagining all this. Yeah. Right? And you're a butterfly. 
and I'm actually a butterfly pretending it's a Chinese philosopher. It's pretty deep. Drink more coffee, it'll feel better. Okay. Okay. I think the music's probably finished by now. Yeah, probably. Would you like to explain to the listeners what the hell we're doing here? No. I <laughs> <laughs> never explain what we're doing. We just go ahead and do it. This and they is... come along for the ride and it's wonderful. This is very true. Would you like me to explain it? Yeah, you do that. Right. We you have... start us off. Hello. Hello, everybody. Um, hello, lovely listeners. Hello, lovely listeners. Sorry, Welcome yes. Welcome around the virtual right. I've got to do it right. I've got to do it right. Hello, lovely listeners. Welcome around the virtual campfire for this... Settle in. Settle in. Warm your knees. Biscuit tin. Something about a biscuit tin. Early owl. What's the hedgehog called? I don't know. Did we even ever ask her? The centurion? Yeah. We're going to have to find out. Hedgehog in armour. She's around here somewhere. I'll, whenever, when I, when next I see her, I'll, 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 cause, I mean, we must have the like, a personnel record somewhere, surely. Anyway, never mind. Listeners, lovely listeners, um, you join us around the virtual campfire. Uh, I, I think for episode one hundred and two of Frithcast, which is this this program, uh, this kind of deal. What what me and uh, the important one over there do. Um, <laughs> this. This who you can hear just there. That is that is my that is my lovely wife Suzanne, who is a heathen with a head full a head full of stuff. Mm-hmm. Some of which is useful. I'm impressed. And some of which is like pop culture references that I don't get. Yeah, got to keep them fresh. Indeed. Yeah. Um, and uh, Suzanne is going to tell us all about stuff, which we will tell you in a minute what we're going to tell you about. Yes. We're actually continuing on from episode 101, which was last time, um, as you can probably tell from the numbers, um, where we were talking about Jorvik. We were talking about Jorvik. But first, yes? lovely listeners, I want to introduce my beloved wife, Kate, who is a coffee-powered druidy thing. Just coffee this time. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So, yes. But she is entirely right in the fact that today's episode, we are going to be carrying on our talk and our tour of Viking Jorvik, Viking York in the UK. Big, big Viking Anglo-Saxon mishmash trading city. Well... Huge, huge excavations and stuff that we talked about last time. Well, I think it might be worth pointing out that it's actually a significant Roman town called called Eberarchum. Don't look at me like that. I'm not looking at you like anything. I'm just saying it was a Roman town called Eberarchum. And then it kind of fell over because the Romans wandered off. Um, leg, gotta just prop it up with a telephone directory. Basically, mm. and then the Anglo-Saxons showed up. They did, and they took it over. They did, and they called it Eofawick. Eofawick. Eofawick, with an ill at the front. Yeah, and then after they'd had it for a bit, yeah, the raiding and trading factions of Scandinavia, very good, looked upon this. Land with envious eyes, and slowly but surely, and slowly but surely, (laughs) (laughs) and now I'm 
just imagining with a tripod with like little <laughs> horns on his helmet. And it's just a bit wrong, but it's very funny. I quite like it. Go on, carry on. Okay, so basically what happened then was that the uh, the Scandinavian um, communities, let's say, launched these pods. Yeah. Right? And they all landed... Red Moss thing going in on. In England. Yeah. One of them on Horsell Common. Well. One of them in the middle of Yorfawick. Yes. Where it opened up and all these Vikings came out and they took over and then they called the town Yorvik. Well, they didn't so much take over as kind of cohabit. What was the town called afterwards? A bit of a mash, really. Um, no, I'm just Yorvik. saying, what, what was it Yorvik. called before? Erfawick was the Anglo-Saxon name, Yorvik was the Scandinavian name, and we kind of... It would have been known as both at the time, and kind of not necessarily one after the other, but a bit more of a blur, to be fair. Okay, yeah. all right. So basically you're just saying it was a matter of which name you wanted to use, and, and everybody yeah, knew think... what... Everybody would have known both names. Okay. And it's not necessarily that, you know, Monday it's Efferwick and Tuesday it's Jorvik and it remains that way from there on from that Tuesday. It's not quite that simple and it's not quite that clean cut. There's so they didn't just like march in of... and march in and take over then? No, not exactly, no. I'm surprised because no. when you consider the heat rays they've got... I know, that you... whole kind of red moss thing going on, the big honky horns. Yeah, you'd think it would yeah. be quite easy, wouldn't you? Yeah, you know. Yeah. Land spirits skitter off at a big horn going off near them and they're just like, what is that? Living somewhere else. <gasps> Done. Oh, the one, I tell you something, that's got, I've got to say though, mm. that was one of the creepy bits. I didn't, the Steven Spielberg version of War of the Worlds was okay. The Tom Cruise one. The Tom Cruise one. That was kind of like, Absentia father, but flipped, wasn't it? It was his usual theme of mm. absent father, and he flipped it for War of the Worlds. Anyway, did you want to talk about Jorvik instead? Yes, okay. let's do that. Let's go back a few years before the heat ray and the zapping and the. Oh yeah, I was going to say it was the noise. Yeah. The the the, the sort of horn call that the the fighting machines did in mm. that film. Creepy A. C. A C. Creepiest creep. That's creepy. I want to talk about the the first episode we talked about, the dig, we talked about the volume of finds, which was just unreal. For that kind of an urban archaeology site, the volume of finds is then every single find has to be washed, conserved, catalogued, photographed, put in a, a, collection, a, a collection order. Yeah. So you can't just hand them over like a bucket of pottery to a museum and go, there you go, mate, it's done. Every piece has to be cleaned, has to be numbered, has to be logged. And then all of those have to be put in individual little baggies with the number on them and put in rank order and then handed over to the museum in a specific type and size of box. And different museums will use different archiving systems. Uh -huh. So... If you're, say, handing over artefacts to a museum in London, they might have a different specified size of artefact box to fit in with their existing catalogue system mm. than the ones in York, than the ones in Edinburgh, than the ones in Brighton. So wherever you're digging, there's a specific set of rules that you have to follow when you hand the artefacts over at the end. Archaeolo That's just a random mad aside for how messed up that system actually is, but there you go. Archaeology's hard. Yeah, it is. There's a lot more, like, 
records and paperwork in it than you expect there to be. I mean, I mean, Dr. Jones, he never filled in one context sheet. No. I am disappointed with his portrayal of professional archaeology. That's all I'm going to say. I know. And you never see, you never see Lara Croft. You do not. Sorting out a Harris matrix. I only say that because it's the only bit of archaeological terminology you I know. You know more than that. Harris matrix and magnetometer, that's about it. Harris that's matrix, yeah, no. They never did any section planning. No. They never did any gridding. They never cleaned their trench back and photographed it. I am disappointed. When did you see Lara Croft with a mattock that she wasn't plunging into somebody's skull? I was going to say, up until the second <laughs> half of that sentence, I was right with you. <laughs> So, tell me about Jorvik. But yes, I want to talk about... I want to put the spotlight on three specific finds from Jorvik from York. Okay. And the first one of these is the Coppergate helmet. Mm -hmm. Now, this is kind of a big deal because the Coppergate, uh, the Coppergate helmet is one of six known Anglo-Saxon helmets in the UK. Okay. We've got six... That's and we talked and we talked about Coppergate last episode. It is the location of the Jorvik Viking Centre. Yes. And was the Street of Cupmakers. The Street of Cupmakers. Mm. Kukragat. Yeah. So the wooden wooden pole lathe turners who made cups and bowls mm -hmm. um, were part of the, the industrial waste, if you like. The evidence of that industry was down in that dig, so they called it Yeah. It was called Coppergate after that. But the Coppergate helmet is, it's a very, very, very plain design. If you look at the Sutton Who helmet, that is like a helmet with bling. Yes, that it is, is very shiny. serious helmet going on. Mm -hmm. And that is a full faceplate with a very distinctive decorative pattern on it. And there's sort of inlays on it and panels on it. And it looks of the business. Very shiny. The Coppergate helmet is very much more functional, very plain. It has a nose guard and cheek guards, but doesn't have that full face mask across the front, if you like. It's got a ridge from, essentially from the forehead to the back of the helmet. It's got a, a ridge from front to back. Mm -hmm. So it matches the, the Sutton Who helmet has this, that same kind of ridge, banded ridge pattern. And the one from uh, Benty Grange is one of the other, one of that six Okay. And the Benty Grange helmet has like a little boar figurine stood on top of it. Oh, yeah. Facing the front. Yeah. Which they think would have had like a bristle crest in the back of it. Oh, nice. Okay. It's very decorative, but the Coppergate helmet doesn't. It's very plain and it's very functional almost. And they found it in a pit that they think was probably a well. So somebody's helmet got tossed down a well. They couldn't get it back. They couldn't retrieve it. It got buried. We get it. That must have been really annoying because yeah. that wouldn't have been a cheap piece of kit, would it? It would not have been a cheap piece of kit to get back or to pay for. Yeah. But then again, if you can afford one helmet, you can probably afford to get another one. True. Or, you know, you can scavenge one or otherwise uh, to, to replace the loss of this yeah, helmet. Yeah. So the Coppergate helmet, one of six Anglo-Saxon helmets, and if you think about the thousands and thousands and thousands of people living in the country at the time, we've got six helmets. 
That's not many helmets. Not hugely. And it's difficult to go to draw a conclusion on that data about whether every warrior would have had a helmet, mm. whether helmets were for people of certain rank and certain status and not for everybody. Yeah. Whether they were helmets made of leather that we just don't have anymore. And so only the metal outers survive, if you like, and the leather... Sometimes when you're wearing a helmet, you don't want to put cold metal straight on top of your head. No. Because, you know, you get that hit, then your head's going to ring for a week. True enough. So you put like a leather or padded quilted cap on underneath the helmet to pad it out to stop the helmet rattling around on your <laughs> your bonds. Makes it not quite so cold. Also good. And also helps pad out blows if you do get hit on the head. So it might be that a lot of the, the fighting people were kitted out with quilted headgear or leather caps mm. that they would put on that we just don't have anymore because they've disintegrated, they've dissolved, the earth has nommed them and they are gone and we don't have them. Yeah. But this metal one from Coppergate, it's, yeah, it's very, very rare and it's the best preserved Anglo-Saxon helmet so far. I can put that caveat on. It's the best preserved anglo-saxon helmet that we have so far mm. so we're going to throw some links into the description so you can compare it to the one at Bentigrange grange and you can compare it to the sutton who one which is you know bling my helmet yeah uh, but the Copygate <clears throat> one is very very plain very functional almost but it's anglo-saxon it is anglo-saxon not scandinavian so it's not scandinavian so no horns on it no no <laughs> No, 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 no. I mean, to be fair, what I say is true. There are no horns on it. Yes. It's also true there are no horns on Scandinavian ones either. Yes. So yes. nothing I've said is a lie. No. <laughs> Fine. Okay, you win that one. So, yeah, first really nice, fairly unique find Coppergate helmet. One of six. Best preserved one we've got. Okay. Second item I want to just have a quick zoom around is a sock. A sock? A single sock, which must have made its owner fairly peeved because they lost a sock. True. Yes. Very annoying. Very annoying. It wasn't by any chance, like, rolled up, stuffed in a helmet and dropped down a well. No. Okay. No, it wasn't. <laughs> it was found near a 10th century wattle and daub wall. So. All right. Okay. Somebody lost a sock at some point or didn't lose a sock and deliberately threw it away. This sock, it's very unique because we don't get a lot of Viking socks. And this is very much, it's a Vi it's been made with a Scandinavian technique called nail binding. Okay. You might see it as nail binding, nail binding, this uh, is, knotless knitting. This is knitting with... A single needle yes. in a kind of an expanding circular pattern. Yes, in like a loop. Yeah. A looped pattern, loop and twist the wool pattern. So it's good for um, creating things that are sort of Tube closed-ended. Like yeah. um, mittens. Like mittens, like socks, uh, even like hats. Yeah. Caps, hats, Caps. bags you sometimes find in nail binding. Yeah. Um, so again, we'll throw some links into the description, but we have most of a sock up to about ankle height. Okay. <laughs> and there is, it, it was uh, identified as being knitted originally and then they got it re-looked at and it's now known to be 
nail bound. This Scandinavian one needle knitting technique. They're not quite sure of the colour of the whole sock because they, they don't have enough colour left in the fibres to figure it out. But they okay. do know that around the ankle there was a little red band of, of different colour. There's also evidence that this sock was patched. Okay. Which I just think is the most amazing, mind-blowing little detail that this sock was... It was cared enough for that it was patched. Yeah. Before it was either thrown away or discarded or lost. They patched it. They didn't darn it or mend it or just bin it because it had a hole in it. They patched it. So somebody way back in the past in Jorvik was sat in a building, you know, in a house by the fire, patching a sock. Because socks take time to make. Yeah. They take resources to, to, to make. They would have cost quite a bit, I imagine. I mean, when you think, I mean... You know, however, however good intentioned we are, we tend to take for granted the fact that you know there will always be socks. Yeah, and these are handmade. Yeah, so they take a long, long time to make. So yes, yeah, somebody at some point realised this sock had a hole in it, and there is evidence on the sock that we have of a patching. Wanted to, to maintain it, it. To, to keep it going, and I think that is the most lovely little little detail of of these. Yeah. This particular item. Yeah. They looked after their stuff. Yeah, and it's it's very, very rare to find that preservation of organic material. And if you think, you know, even the socks nowadays, they're cloth. So you put them in the ground and within a year or two years, they've rotted. Yeah. They've gone. So the fact that we have this sock this many centuries after is just the most amazing thing. There is an understanding that... <clears throat> We don't find very many socks. So again, I'm going back to that skewed data set. You know, did everybody wear socks? Did everybody have, like, wear two pairs of socks and we just now don't find any of them? We've literally only just found the one. We've found one sock. One. Were they all nail-bound? Were they all nail-bound socks? Was that was that a common manufacturing technique here yeah. in England? And did they use a different technique in Scandinavia? Did it come across on the foot of a trader or a raider from Scandinavia mm. and get over here and get traded for something over here? Did it Was the owner of it somebody who stayed in Jorvik and had a life in Jorvik? Yeah. And then threw out their old socks when they got too, by, too poor to mend anymore mm. and mm. got themselves a new pair from somebody down the road who swapped it for something else. The the possibilities of life for that object from its creation to its discarding however that discarding happened mm. there are it's there are so many i don't know stories that could weave in and out of that yeah deliberately using the word weave <laughs> there are so many possibilities there is some there is a tentative theory that it's scandinavian and therefore it came over on because it's a scandinavian technique but it could have been Somebody who was over here from Scandinavia who just made a pair of socks. Yeah. It didn't actually have to travel from Scandinavia to here. The technique did. The the technique did, but, but the sock might not have done. Yeah, yeah. Or alternatively, the pair of socks was made in Scandinavia, was brought over here to trade, and they traded them away for something else, or they came over as somebody's footwear. Mm-hmm. The possibilities of where that object has been are things that we'll never know, but they're just amazing to think about. Yeah. What happened to this object and where it 
where it started its life, you know, who mended it? Mm. Who decided that they were going to put little red bands around the ankles of it? Why that decoration? Why there? If you've got people who are from Scandinavia, if it's a man's sock, then they're wearing leg wraps. So you might not get to see all of this lovely little detail that they've put in around the ankles. Yeah, but you don't always you don't always wear items for other people to see the detail. Sometimes you can wear items just because, you know, you you're wearing something groovy and Yeah, you know, your lucky socks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love the the sock mm. that came out of that dig and it, it's incredibly rare to get anything that is made of those what they call like fiber so fiber materials yarn thread cloth to a certain extent although we tend to find that surviving a little bit better but knitted stuff like this nail bound stuff yeah not usually a chance not a normal thing not even remotely close to a normal thing (laughs) to find something like that so again that's in the jorvik viking center in a special um humidity controlled display case where the light is controlled the humidity is controlled that entire environment is sterile for it to be preserved yeah but if you can imagine being an archaeologist on a site in the mud or in you know you're digging down below the water level and that water is what's helping preserve everything yeah and you come across fibers and gradually you realize you've got a piece of knitted garment how then do you excavate that and then the air is drying it out and taking away the humidity of it, which means it's going to start decomposing. Crumbling to dust before your eyes. Literally, yes. Sometimes it is that fast. 800 years. No, not 800 years. More than that. 1,200 years. Mm. Catching up in a matter of moments. And it literally... Sometimes it is that fast. Mm. And so you have to be very, very careful when you get to something that delicate and you realise what you've got. You've got to do like what they call a block lift so you don't lift you don't excavate round the item and just lift the item you just take a whole chunk of you earth. take a whole cube of earth yeah a massive big cube of earth and you do not disturb the item in the earth and you pack that whole cube mm. into a plastic container and you get it to your conservator like now <laughs> <laughs> let them worry them... let them worry about yeah, it yeah and that's their very very expensive well <laughs> job <laughs> To deal with these blocks of earth and frantic archaeologists saying, <laughs> I think we've got fibre. I think we've got Nile binding mm. coming out. And, and then you imagine you've got a block of earth with this, you know, piece of woven fabric starting to peek through on it. And you've got to excavate that fabric, get that object out with as little damage as possible, and then find a way to clean it yeah. and transfer it to a display stand get it onto that display stand. I mean, the the sock actually has like a little form that's been put inside it. So okay. you've got to find a way to then very, very gently ease that, you know, 1,200-year-old piece of fabric <laughs> over a modern form and get it into a display case where it can have its environment controlled. Wow. And then, you know, you're looking at studying it. So what is the... Uh, what are the fibres made out of? Mm-hmm. What kind of plant fibres is it and where you might be able to tell roughly where they're from Mm -hmm. because they might have a very specific species interwoven into them. What kind of twist have they put on the wool? Is it an S-twist? Is it a Z-twist? Have they nail-bound it? Have they woven it? Have they knitted it? Have they knotted it? 
Are there any knots in it? Are there any evidence of mending? What colour is it? All of that kind of stuff. You know, is it a natural dye they've used? What kind of natural dye? Where where does that stop and start? Is that little red band, is that a separate thread made of something else for mm. that colour? Or is it the same material, but in a different colour that they've just put a little band in? Yeah. So all of that, you can then start getting that information from, but it's a race against time in getting that information and getting it into preserved conditions yeah very very quickly because once it starts to degrade the oxygen starts getting to it it's not had that for 1200 years mm. and oxygen is nasty with things oxygen can be very very destructive yeah um fortunately not to us but even the air that we're but, yeah. breathing can be utterly fatal to objects coming straight out the ground that have been mm. buried for centuries and then the atmosphere changes and the humidity changes the pressure changes and it just disintegrates. Yeah. And you've lost it. Whatever it was, it's gone. I did want to talk about one last find from Jorvik. Okay. And it's another find that is very, very rare. Let me guess. Is it... I mean, we've talked about a helmet. Yep. Uh, we've talked about a sock. A single sock. Yes. So let me guess. What's this next thing going to be? It's probably going to be a shield. No. A sword? No. A piece of farm equipment? No, you did get some... There are some examples of tools at Jorvik. Yeah? Quite a lot of this cottage industry tools and toolkits, mm, but mm. it's not a piece of farming... There's not a lot of farming equipment because essentially you're in the middle of a city. Mm. So the farming happens like a couple of miles down the road. Yeah. Some lovely jewellery. Some lovely, sh- a lovely shiny mm. set of beads or something. No. Uh, a... a... There are a, beads at Jorvik, a, but this is not what I'm thinking of. A gorgeous gold plate. No. I'm at a loss. What could it possibly be? Well, <laughs> its Sunday name yes. is the Lloyds Bank Coprolite. The Lloyds Bank Coprolite. Okay. Yeah. Some of our listeners may be familiar with the term coprolite. Yes. And have an idea what it means. Yes. What does it mean, Suzanne? For ones that are not familiar <laughs> with the Sunday posh term of coprolite, it's a fossilised human poo. Lovely. I know, right? And we don't get human poo fossilised because by its nature it breaks down into the earth and it's gone. Yeah, yeah, which is kind of where we want it, gone. Kind of where we want it, gone. But this poo is a very lucky poo <laughs> because it survived. <sighs> I, what can I say? 1,200 so, years of... 1,200 years of just sitting there minding its little business. Yeah. <laughs> right, I'm going to stop being childish. And then it's we just, excavate it. It's and just... again, you can imagine the conservator's face of, you've got a what now? Yeah. <laughs> and you're going to brock lift it to me this afternoon. Okay, right. Uh, get the textbooks. I've never had to deal with one of these before. I mean... There has to be the, the there has to be the issue of while you're digging around in the earth, mm. you find a poo. Yeah, don't usually find them in this good a condition, really. But they, how did you even notice it? I mean, not you personally. No, I, I, you know, I did. I was not the one in the 1980s to dig up a human poo at Jorvik. So we don't know whether this belongs to an Anglo-Saxon or a Scandinavian. We can't tell. It coming up. Have its little poo passport. We've got no clue as to where it came from, but we can tell that the 
I don't know what you call them. Owner? Producer? The owner. Depositor? Um, the depositor. <laughs> <laughs> that person, the diet was mostly bread and meat. Okay. Very, very little veg. The majority, from what they can tell of the poo, from the samples they've taken from it, the diet is bread and meat. And the other thing that's really interesting in a way that, mm. again, we don't usually ever find evidence of is that there is evidence in that poo of um, intestinal worms. Oh, delightful. So this person potentially was very, very ill. Ooh. And very had a very, very upset stomach. And you can get those worms from things like undercooked meat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and yet the item itself is appropriately formed. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, it's... Yeah, it's not something that you kind of think of. Again, again, when you, you you think of Dr. Jones, you think of Lara Croft, you think of the excitement and adventure of archaeology. Yeah. Right? You tend not to think, right, this week I've got to analyse a, f- a, a, a basically fossilised piece of poo yep. from a thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. Somebody who had trouble with worms, mm-hmm. ate mostly bread and meat. Yep. And and I've got to reach back through time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, valuable work. It is. And it does mean that we get some evidence of what they were eating. As well as things like the food waste that was on the site, we now have got the direct evidence. And we don't get that. Human coprolite evidence, very, very rare. Mm, mm. So these conditions at Jovic, for these three things to have survived the way they did, yeah. you've got the Coppergate helmet, which is the best preserved Anglo-Saxon helmet we have to date mm-hmm. in the country. You have the nailbound sock, which again, those fibre items, very, very rare in preservation. Yeah, And you have this human poo, which is, as far as I know, completely unique. You don't ever find that it's odd when you think how many of them are being produced from that date you don't ever find those yeah you just don't they are not there it's extraordinary so these are three very very unique items from the Jovic excavations Mm. from york which can give us those little those extra insights that we don't usually have and the site is because it was waterlogged and because it's essentially very, very close to the river. If you've been to the Jorvik Viking Centre, it backs onto the river. Yeah. So much so that when that river rises, the centre floods because you enter the Jorvik Viking Centre at ground level. Yep. That's where the gift shop is. Yes. And then if you go to the actual exhibition, you're going into the building and you're going down. That's right, yes. Into just above where the ex- just above where the excavation layer is. Because they've actually got, they've stripped it back to the they've, excavation layer and put a glass. Yes, there's a floor you can look through when you yeah. get down there. It's... And it's about sort of six inches off the actual excavation layer. So you can see the walls and see some of the finds still in situ and labelled up. And you're actually walking on the surface and six inches below your feet is the Viking, what would have been the Viking city surface. That's really strange, isn't it? So when, if you imagine then that the river is next door, mm. when that rises and floods, the centre floods as well. Yeah. 
So it's flooded twice, to my knowledge. And when it does flood, you've got all those exhibits and you need to get them out. But you need to get them out in temperature and humidity controlled conditions because otherwise they will degrade. (coughs) And this is while there's a flood coming in. This is while there's a flood coming in. And while you're walking through knee-deep water with a box of exhibits and artefacts that you are trying to keep from the floodwaters and trying to save. So the work that they have done in that centre to... They, they flooded badly twice, as far as I remember. Mm, mm. And the work that they have done in that centre to, to bring it up to date, you can't protect it from the flooding, but they do have these flood management plans which says which exhibits get moved where and in what order and how... Very, very specific. It's like trying to take an aircraft off the ground. It's an absolute point plan yeah. to what gets Proper moved. Checklists. In what hour. Yeah, literally, it's a checklist of what gets moved and in what order. So not one of those artifacts gets left behind mm. or gets damaged in transit or gets knocked, degrades because you've not got it in the right environment or the right humidity, the right lighting, and it starts breaking down under those conditions yeah but you imagine having to move a soccer over a thousand years old and how you would even consider doing that when the floodwaters are up to your knee and rising and they're likely to stay that way for a very long time i don't know how you would go about doing that when you have all the time in the world if i'm honest yeah and it's a very very it has to be a very quick operation and it has to be very very delicate yeah to move that number of artifacts because you've got thousands of artifacts that have come from that excavation and only a very small fraction of them are on display at any one time yeah so some of them are in the york museum some of them will be in storage the greater proportion of those artifacts will be in storage some of them are at the jorvik viking center Mm. so lovely listeners we wanted to take you on that kind of whistle stop tour of three of the items from the jorvik dig There are thousands, literally thousands of artefacts and items that give you that glimpse into daily life, into industry, into trade, into home life, into mending socks. It is a veritable bounty. Blows my brain a little bit (laughs) that they mended socks. Mm. Just thinking about that happening. We're going to kind of leave you around the virtual campfire, just kind of pondering the evidence of these lives and that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, that was that was always sort of the point of the Viking Center, yeah. and the way they've the way they've always approached it. At least in my in my recollection, it's always been about this is how people lived these very ordinary, remarkable lives mm. that happen in that city, which is a a mishmash of Anglo-Saxons and Scandinavians and traders coming in on the ooze and. You know, when you get to winter, did they use freeze and they were skating up? They found, they found bone skates. So are they, they skating did, up yeah. and down a frozen river on, on skating yeah, competitions? one assumes. You know, did they have winter feasts? Did they have storytelling nights? Did they trade with people and get drunk with people and, and do all of these things and fall in love with people Yeah. who might not quite speak the same language? Yeah. It's... And I love that, that little thought, it those little been... thoughts about these ordinary amazing lives it must have been quite a place to live just a little bit of a place to live Mm. yeah so lovely listeners we're going to leave you having a ponder about anglo-saxon and scandinavian influence in york 
yeah. in the UK. We will talk to you all again for episode 103. Get us 103. 103. How awesome is that? 103. 103. Doesn't work. We'll be getting to 113 fairly soon. That'll work better. 113. Yeah, that'll, yeah, that'll be all yeah, right. That, that's good. Yeah, that's that'll good. be like fine. That. <laughs> I'll wait till then, then. If you want to find <laughs> us online, you can find me. My name is Suzanne Martin. You can find me on Facebook under Suzanne Martin, or you can find me on Twitter at Geetha in Jeans. And should you want to find me, it's... Uh, uh, there, are, uh, there are admittedly f- somewhat fewer options. Um, I'm basically on our Discord server, which you can find access to through our Facebook group, which uh, you can find at fb.com slash frithcastpod. Um, that will lead you to our group... And give you uh, details of our Discord server as well. You'd be more than welcome to come and join us there. Yes. Come and have a chat around the virtual home for the virtual campfire. (laughs) Lovely listeners, thank you very much for joining us. We will talk to you all next time. See you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.